mainstream political parties and progressive change-making. It can be a pretty challenging space. Sometimes Labor parties and social democratic parties give birth to change, like universal healthcare or the welfare state. But at other times, it's hard to see them as allies at all. This week, our guest has more political party experience than most, and today we unpack the highs, the lows, and the hopes for political parties as big change makers. Today's chat is with Ed Miliband. Ed Miliband was the UK Labor Party's opposition leader from 2010 to 2015. Following his defeat, he remained a member of parliament, playing a global role in advocating for climate action through a Green New Deal. He's a thinker, and he's just released a book called Go Big, a tour de force of big ideas for change. And he's also a podcaster with a podcast called Reasons to be Cheerful. Most importantly and unusually, Ed is a candid politician. He shares quite openly what works and what doesn't work, from his own time in politics to reflecting on what needs to be done in these challenging times. So, what are we waiting for? Let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats, conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. Changemakers also runs an organising school where you can sharpen your skills to make change in the world. All the details are on our website where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. Well, Ed, welcome to the program. We are so excited to have you, a fellow changemaker on Changemakers. And indeed a fellow podcaster. I feel very privileged, so thank you for having me. It is true. I've listened to your delightful podcast. It does create reasons to be cheerful. And we are excited to have you here today to talk about your theories and philosophies and formation as a change maker and share some insights about your experience. And so, I mean, look, I think most people probably know who you are tuning in, but I think that what they would be keen to hear is how you would describe the kind of change maker that you are. You know, we have lots of people on the show. What kind of change maker are you? How in what do you do to try and seek to make social change in the world in the work that you do? I'm still working that out. I hope that's an all right thing to say. Well, look, you know, I'm a politician. I was leader of the Labour Party. I stood down when I lost the 2015 general election, but I but I stayed in Parliament and in politics because, you know, I feel like you don't need to be a leader. And maybe this is the theme of your podcast. You don't need to be a leader of a political party in order to make change happen. And I do feel like change comes from um, the bottom up. It comes from people not not politicians fundamentally, come from popular movements, I think, um, that, that I, I suppose I think that change is hard, particularly from the left. You know, you can feel you'll sort of lose quite a lot of the time and you'll have to keep going in order to make it happen. And, and also I feel like 
you change happens in unexpected ways. So, you know, debates can change. What is possible, what is what seems like acceptable can can be changed by arguing. So even if you think you've lost, you can start to change the argument and the framing of where arguments take place. So so I think I think change comes in many, many varieties. And I think it can be very local, national, international. As I say, I'm still working out exactly what kind of change maker I am. You're becoming rather than you is your being a change maker. I love it. <laughs> and so what we're I mean, look, the thing that is of interest in particular to me is that you have so much experience working as a politician, as also as someone who's been aligned with and worked inside of and connected with social movements as well, like hearing your point that that change comes from lots of spaces. What I'm interested in understanding more is is some of the key influences and and experiences that you've had that have shaped the particular kind of change maker that you are the kind that you've been a politician but also that you the way in which you interpret the role of politicians and the responsibilities of politicians for making change go back as far as you'd like you know go back to where you think important stories emerge for you that that started to ground and shape who you are as a political leader what sticks out what made you who you are I think this, I have to start with my parents, as I'm sure most of your guests do, two Jewish refugees. My dad came uh, to Britain in 1940, fled Belgium with his father. My mum uh, was in hiding in Poland as a small child during the Second World War, came after uh, the war. And, you know, I think when you when your parents are shaped by that experience, I think it does you know, relative, who you know had relatives, many relatives who were murdered. You know, it shapes your experience, your view of politics as as something very, very profound and important. And I think so. I think that is very much in the background. And then I think it was that the, they were on the left in the UK, and they had international friends. I, I it, when I was twelve, I met. Um, a woman called Ruth First, who was a South African activist, married to Joe Slovo, uh, General Secretary of the South African Communist Party. And a few months later, she would be murdered by the South African secret police in in, in Mozambique. And uh, you know, meeting someone like people like Ruth and Joe, you know, has a sort of profound effect on on me. I think as a 12-year-old I was, because you're seeing people sort of literally living and dying for for politics and for political change. So the conventional view, I, th- I think the combination of the background, my background, my parents' background, and those kind of experiences, I think they couldn't help but lead me to see why politics matter. I mean, I suppose it's possible that I could have sort of rebelled and just sort of thought, right, okay, I'm not having any of this. I'm, I'm, I'm getting out of this. I don't want, I don't want anything to do with this. But um but you know, it, it 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 had a sort of profound effect, I think, on actually on an excitement about politics and the ability of politics to change things, but also a sense of responsibility, I suppose. Mm. But you know, like you could have got into a lot of different forms of political activity. You know, like you know, the union movement, for instance, or or social movements, for instance. Why did you choose the Labour Party? Well, I chose the Labour Party because it was, you know the sort of progressive vehicle in the UK. My dad had had a, who was a Marxist academic, had a 
very, very ambivalent relationship with the Labour Party. He was in it for a few years in the 1950s, 60s, um, but really kind of was quite sceptical about it. Let's just clue clue our listeners in, right? Your dad was Ralph Miliband. Anyone who's at university who's ever studied Marxism probably read his books. I know I did as a nerdy, you know, 20-year-old. Like, big deal thinker around some of these questions in the Labour Party. Just just for those who, you know, wanted to know. And he, look, he wrote a book called Parliamentary Socialism in the early 60s, which was saying that Labour could never really be a socialist party. And I suppose some of his, his erstwhile colleagues might say that I tried to set about proving it. Um, but <laughs> um, uh, I, I, I wouldn't think that was fair. But so, so, so the Labour Party was the, 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 the obvious vehicle. And, and my dad was interesting in this respect, which is that he was a Marxist, he was a, uh, an academic, he wanted, he, he was for big, profound change, he was sceptical about the Labour Party, but he was very, wasn't contemptuous of those who chose the sort of electoral political but he used to canvass at elections for the Labour Party he used to knock on doors you know he, he he would do his sort of bit so he had this sort of ambivalence and I think I found politics you know really exciting uh, to get involved with I mean talking of nerdy um, I was you know, I sort of very nerdy at the as a teenager I was very you know engaged in politics I thought it was exciting and profound and I I did think about academia when I went after I'd gone to university and so on and I I sort of fundamentally felt, well, I want to be in the action business. Not that academics, some academics aren't, but I remember having this conversation. My dad died in 1994, but I remember having this conversation with him after I graduated in 1992 from university and saying, look, dad, you know, I know that being an academic is the kind of thing you really have the ultimate respect for, not respect, but the ultimate, you think the ultimate sort of thing, but it's politics that drives me. It's the, it's the, it's the immediate and he said, look, I know, and I know, and he was very, you know, encouraging of that. He wasn't saying, well, you're selling out or anything. No, I'm sure he would have been incredibly proud, <laughs> even at that well, point. <laughs> maybe, yeah, yeah, he was. I mean, he, you know, we, I think he, even then we were having, we were having political arguments. But, yeah, so I think that's kind of why I chose the path I did. Yeah. So you went in. You, you you were an advisor, you worked for different people, you've had lots of levels of experience inside the party in lots of different ways. I know that one of your early experiences once you became a minister under Gordon Brown's government was that you you went to, to go solve climate change at Copenhagen. <laughs> Tell us yeah. about that experience. Like how how did that conference and the and the the limits and the difficulties of that space how how did that shape you as this kind of leader that you are still becoming i mean it's interesting isn't it because that was quite a moment for the world because there was such hope and such a movement that had been mobilized and in a way i was a bit in the uk was responsible for mobilizing it i see these and we've got another big one coming up this year in glasgow uh, i see these these cops these international meetings as a sort of pressure point on politicians and in a way I was quite keen it was used as a pressure point um, on politicians. I mean, the conference itself was a bit of a disaster, as, as your listeners will, will know. Honestly, I think the thing I feel most about it in retrospect was the shadow of mistrust and injustice, in particular between developing and developed countries, hung over that conference. I think it's the sense that the developed world has 
chosen this high carbon route, developed on this high carbon route, and is now saying to the developing world, you got to go a different route. And, you know, yes, yes, we all do. The question is, how do we make that possible? How do we take our share of the burden? And I think that is sort of, I think that's a still, a, a, and you see it now playing out this year and issues around climate finance, vaccines, the cuts in overseas aid in the UK. That those questions are still absolutely profound. They profoundly shape these climate discussions. I mean, I did have this moment. I mean, just personally, I had this moment at the end of the Copenhagen summit where it looked like the whole thing was going to go down the pan, and I intervened quite strongly uh, in, in a very sort of. I think it was in the middle of the night. I'd slept for forty-eight hours to try and save the agreement, and I, I remember my chief advisor, my chief civil servant, I was about to go to bed for the first time in sort of, I think, 48 hours. And then I, because, and Gordon Brown had been there, world leaders had been there, Gordon Brown had gone and said, we've got some kind of agreement, I'm off back to London, don't mess it up now. So he didn't use the word mess, he used a sort of slightly ruder word, ruder word than that. I mean, actually, Kevin Rudd had also been there and playing an important part. And, and then I remember my Civil servant ringing me, chief civil servant ringing me and saying, "Oh well, it's going down the pan. People are objecting to the agreement. It's it's all going to go wrong." And I said, "I, I had Gordon Brown's um, sort of image in my mind, saying, do 'Don't mess it up now.'" So I sort of rushed back to this conference center. You know, went to the microphone. The UK microphone was on the blink. I had to go to the US microphone. You know, you had you had you had people from the developing world saying, well, this agreement is rubbish because it's, it's you know, two degrees of warming and it's not good enough. And I agreed the agree- agreement wasn't good enough, but I thought something was better than nothing. I fought really hard in the speech to try and say, look, we can't, we can't just dismiss this agreement. Actually, you know, it's hard to even remember now what was saved and what wasn't. There are some important things came out of Copenhagen, even though overall it was a disaster. The, the commitment to an overall temperature limit the hundred billion dollars of finance, which still unfortunately hasn't been delivered, so there was some and some kind of framework was set up uh, for the future. I suppose what did it teach me that whole experience? I suppose it teaches you about how complex the climate crisis is in terms of everybody's got to be in. But I think it also does does, does teach me something about politics, which is, and I think actually Gordon Brown, who I worked for, taught me this most of all, which is. You should never really take no for an answer and never give up. You know, you've really got to, the the easy path is to sort of accept defeat or accept that things aren't going to work out. And I think he had a dogged determination. The only reason we got the Copenhagen Accord was he sat up all night with junior ministers, heads of state, other people, essentially taking over the chair of this meeting, going line by line through a draft agreement when everybody else was saying, well, we should just go to bed and give up. And he's like, well, I'm not giving up. We're going to try and get what we can. So I think that's quite an important lesson. Yeah, perseverance. This sort of Perseverance. Idea, see it to the end. Perseverance. And look, and that's what, you know, like take it back to your story of, of the heroes that you met at age 12 from South Africa. I mean, that was decades and decades and decades of struggle that was required to be able to see change. But those who fought for that, who believed it was possible, saw it happen. I guess it's the lesson that keeps coming up again and again and again for us on climate change as well, that we we have to be able to see it through to make real change happen. I mean, that's such an important point about South Africa, because, you know, I remember when I would meet, when I was certainly Joe in the 1980s, Joe Slovo, and, you know, 
the thought that apartheid would end seemed for the birds. I mean, it just seemed completely like it was never going to, you know, what, apartheid wasn't going to end? You know, it, it was sort of, it seemed such a long, long way off. And he was obviously hopeful, but, you know, and, and I think there's something, you know, it is also this thing that things seem politically impossible until they're not, and then they happen. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. And, and and it's the most impossible things can happen. And I just remember that from my youth, you know, the Berlin Wall, the end of apartheid. So there's so many things that happen that 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 people just dismiss as impossible. Now, bad things can happen too, like Trump, but uh, which also people think are impossible. But but I think that is a really important lesson. Yeah, yeah, and we're going to get to that in in a second, talking about Bismarck's art of the possible, possibly requiring some revisiting in these in these go big days. But there's one more area that I would, would love you to reflect on, which is okay. So you became the head of the Labor Party, you leader of the opposition, you ran around the country, build momentum, extraordinary experience. I'm sure, I'm sure you could regale us with lots of amazing stories of of that. I don't want to ask you about that. I want to ask you about what you learnt from the experience of, of losing that election and deciding to then, what did that teach you? And I don't want you to, you know, st- this is not a moment for enforcing yeah. sure. self-flagellation. Well, <laughs> but, I mean, you know. first, losing elections sucks. I mean, it's not a great thing. To, it's, not, it's not great losing elections. I'm sure some lots of your listeners can can empathise with that, although maybe not as the leader of a political party. Like in the same way, but I reckon they get the gist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's that. I think, well, I think in a way it poses a prof- it posed a profound question to me pretty much straight away. Well, what do you want to do? Do you want to carry on or do you want to go and do something else? And I was pretty clear I wanted to carry on. For better or for worse, this is the sort of, not profession, but this is the life I've chosen. Your vocation and, almost, yeah. Yeah, I maybe mean, that's one way of putting it. And 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 so, you know, you can't just give it up. I just I didn't want to give it up. So I wanted to stay. I did this community organising course um, organised by Citizens UK, an organisation you, you know well, after the election. And it was a sort of five-day training course and it was a sort of, I guess it was some kind of political detox for me. And it was a strange experience because there's lots of community activists and me uh, at this course. <laughs> I remember one person saying to me as, I, as we arrived at this Salvation Army Centre in London where the course was taking place, they said, oh, are you going to be talking to us? And I said, no, I'm doing the course. And they were like, uh, um, that's a bit peculiar. There was there you could. No, it's so great that. though. I can't believe that you actually agreed to do that. I want every politician in the in the world who loses an election to come and sit with other ordinary everyday people and talk about well, it was, politics. I mean, it was wow. great. I mean, I found it really moving and you know striking and and it's this it's this and I write about this in my book. It's it, it's the sort of it's a kind of collective model of leadership, which I think is interesting. And in a way, I wish I'd done it before I became leader. I did, I did work with a community organizer, Arnie Graf, um, for, from the United States, trying to get the Labour Party to become more like a community organization in the way it worked, in its relationships, in its campaigning. It, it's really hard to marry that with the electoral necessities. But it's the no. I think it's that everybody can be a leader and that nobody is powerless. And and I think it just it just reminded me about the importance of of movements. And I, if I'm frank with you, I find it very hard. I think it's very hard to be a day to day politician and hold on to those insights. I remember saying to a friend of somebody who became a friend of mine who was running the course, "I hope this isn't going to be like my holiday snaps." 
In other words, you go on holiday, you come back, and then you look at the you look at the pictures from holiday, and you think, well, that feels like a long way away. And I think it's hard to to, to sort of maintain that in the way a political party works. But I think it is, I, I, I think it's this fundamental lesson about the ability of people to make change. You know, in a way, it spoke to me, the moment I was in, which was, okay, you're not the leader anymore. What the hell are you going to do? Well, you can carry on making change. And I took some of the insights back to my local Labour Party. We did some local campaigns around, based on some community organising principles. So, so it was a really, it was an important moment for me. How awesome. Well, we're going to get into this now, right? So a lot of the thinking that you've been doing since that moment is a lot of the ideas are captured in the book, right? So you've written this fabulous book about going big in terms of political ideas. And, and you know, what even just from what you describe, it's got so many dimensions. In the, in the book, it's about big ideas, whether it's a Green New Deal or transformed housing or it's also bigness in terms of how many people are involved in political activity. And you've got a whole uh, section of the book dedicated to change makers. And for that, we thank you for, you know, you know, stealing your title. No, for promoting us to another audience, my friend, we're fine with it. (laughs) Um, But what I I want to sort of start this conversation about, you know, how you operationalize change, like let's get into how we think about making change by just actually getting you to, to tell the audience, like, what do you mean by going big and give us an example of what going big looks like based on, on the, the work that you did to pull that book together. It's fundamentally an argument, which is the scale of crises and issues we face demand not incremental change, but but profound change. And that whether it is the inequality we have and and has sort of been baked into our uh, economy, the way that markets are so often out of control, the climate crisis that is so real and present, you can't look at those issues and think, well, Let's just do a little bit of tinkering around the edges, and that will sort sort them out. And in a way, I think part of the part of the what the book is trying to say is we made our institutions; we can remake them. And I think that's what progressive politics at its best has always been about. I think that if you think about Britain after the Second World War, we built the welfare, but the government then built the welfare state. That was what it was about. And I think that has been that impetus has been lost in some ways. Now, what does profound change look like? The first chapter of the book is essentially about the Green New Deal. You know, I think that is a big idea. That is a big idea about how we need to tackle the climate crisis, about how we can't just tackle the climate crisis and keep the existing injustices in place. But there is a big vision here about housing, transport, the way we live, how we judge an economy, all of those things. And I think it could form the centre of actually any progressive party's vision at the moment. I mean, goodness me, looking around the world at the extreme weather we get, you know, this is why climate stands alone as an issue, because it is it is so present and so dangerous. And the decisions we make in this decade are going to be so important for the future. And obviously, governments are understandably focused on COVID. But 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 apart from COVID, I think it's just it's absolutely unique as an issue. But but it's making also an argument. And I think this is also what going big is about, which is that it's not just about doing things in the old ways. So I think it, I think the the I feel like the climate movement has not had fairness and, and economic and social justice nearly enough at its heart. 
Um, and that is, for me, the, the, the genius of the Green New Deal, which is it is about the climate crisis, but it's also about much more than that. It is about not just replacing the high carbon unjust world with a zero carbon unjust world, but 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 changing both. Yeah. The bigness in terms of how the issue is even constructed and who constructs the issues to make sure that the that, that people of colour, that working class communities are all part of a exactly. constituency. It's not just people who have traditionally been interested in, say, in traditional environmentalism, remaking the movement to remake the issues as well. Excellent. So now here's the question that really was on my mind as as I as I read um, going big, and this is a some I've been interested in in mainstream labor politics in across much of my life too. Not as not as involved as you've been, obviously, but you know, definitely a spectator to how mainstream labor parties and political uh, social democratic parties work. And I kept thinking about the fact that you're writing this book about going big, these radical ideas, these radical um, relationships between social movements and political actors, but you are someone from the Labor Party, right? You're not just Joe Blow, you're Ed Miliband having been at the centre of of the Labor Party. And it made me want to understand more about whether you really think that a Labor Party can go big or under what circumstances, what are the preconditions that allows a a Labor Party or a Social Democratic Party to go big? Because we know that they often have some trouble in this space, right? We often go small. I've seen lots of of Labor Parties or Social Democratic Parties around the world go small and become timid for lots of different reasons. But in this book, you express deep hope. And in your life, you've had lots of experience at every level of, of mainstream progressive party work. When can they actually go big? What make when will they be a change maker, do you think? I mean, that's a really profound and important question. I mean, in a way, to be self-critical for a minute, you know, part of the reflection of this book, uh, part of what led me to write the book is I felt when I was leader, I went big in my analysis, but I probably went too kind of small to medium in my in my prescriptions. I think it's really, I think it's really hard, Amanda. I think it I don't think I should we should underestimate the difficulties of it. And why is it hard? Because it can feel like the big risk you face is scaring the horses, saying too much that sounds like profound change, leaving your opponent something to attack, all, all of those things. And the the easier it feels like the easier, less risky path is to go, go small or go medium. I think the problem with that is I think it ignores people's sense of the scale of the change they want to see. So I Brexit, my constituency, Doncaster voted, where, where I'm an MP, uh, voted big, big style, Labour constituency voted big style for Brexit. What was the biggest reason people said to me they wanted big change? And these were Labour voters, lots of Labour voters voting for Brexit. Um, so, so I think one, it ignores the, the, the current sort of situation. Two, I think it ignores our political opponents who've also recognised this. So if you take Johnson and his advocacy of Brexit, if you take Trump, you know, they are they are trying to get that this, and it is a, I think a lot of it is this about, this is about economic discontent and the economic system not working for people. They are trying to get at that. They are not traditional conservatives saying, we just want to keep things as they are. So you've got a conservative opponent that is actually now f- for change and saying, we want to be for change. And I think that, I think in a way that that increases 
um, the imperative. So, so the bigness of the, 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 the solutions that are required, the nature of the conservative opponent, both drive both drive me to to that conclusion. I mean, what are the circumstances? I think you look at Biden and you think it is really interesting. You know, this is a guy who, what, a year ago, but a bit more than a year ago was being written off even in the Democratic primary. Um, then he was sort of said, okay, well, maybe he'll win the election, but, you know, he's going to be a transitional figure. And now he's going big for transformation. Um, and I think he realizes that, that, that that's where people are. But, you know, his biographer says Joe Biden's always at the center of where the Democratic Party is. I think there's something really interesting about that this is where he's placing his flag. And I don't think it's just internal political pressure. So I think we need to learn from examples. And, and look, I think the only way, we, we, we in the UK face a problem, I think that lots of social democratic left parties face, which is these two traditional, these two different constituencies, a younger graduate constituency, often living in cities, uh, an older, less likely to be graduate uh, constituency living in blue collar, living in towns. How do you, what unites those two groups? I think it is actually this sense that the economy is not working for lots of people and needs to be, and needs to be different. So I can't, I can't be sure to know exactly what the circumstances are that produce that, 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 push progressive parties in this direction, but I certainly think it's the direction they need to go, partly because it's the right thing to do, but I think it's the right thing to do electorally too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the Biden example is interesting because the other element I see in his bigness and, you know, it's in some ways some surprising bigness post-election has been his preparedness to align himself with the social movements that have sprung up, like Black Lives Matter, right? Like in times gone by- people sort space from those groups, whereas actually there seems to be a, an increasing alignment in a whole bunch of places, whether it's there or Barcelona, like where there's this sort of connection between um, between social movements and progressive politics. And hope maybe that's part of the mix as well. Definitely. I, I agree with you. And look, I, I think it's also responding to the sense of, you, you, I, I think people have a sense, whether you're part of a social movement or not, I think people have a sense that this economy is not working for a lot of people. I just see it as a constituency MP. You know, people aren't saying it's all great and, you know, let's just carry on as we are. And I think unless the left and left parties respond to that and say we can, we are the people. So so it's very interesting for me in the UK, the, you know, up to 2015, I had David Cameron as my opponent. He won the election in 2015. His basic message was a traditional conservative message. Things are pretty good. He wanted to say Labour had messed it up. Things are pretty good. Stick with us. And we now face a profoundly different conservative opponent because that is not their argument. It was first Theresa May uh, who started to say there are burning injustices in the country and they need to change, and now Johnson too. And Johnson wants to be the articulator of a change message not a status quo message. And I think, and I think, you know, as I say, you see it with Trump, that, that there is a really important thing here about how conservatism is responding to what they see and what I see as popular feeling and popular discontent. And, and also, look, just on the climate thing, I mean, look, in the end, I suppose the thing I learn about politics is you just got to, the best politics, I think, in the end, is to do what you think is right. You know, and I think this is actually, by the way, true of any political leader. What will they say they regret the most? Not the decisions they took where they followed their own instincts 
and they didn't succeed. But the decisions they took where they had the edges shaved off, they they judged the angles, they were told by people around them, oh, be careful on that, don't say that. And then you, you just lose authenticity. And I'm not sort of blaming the people around me or my advisor or anything like that, but, but I think there's something really important. I think that's what, I think people don't want bullshit. They want just, they want what you what you believe. And, and I think that is a really important sort of, I think that's a really, I think the level of cynicism about the political process is such that people, people want candor and authenticity. Yeah. No, I think that's true. I think it's interesting what you're describing about the kind of people we need to actually sit on the, on the leather couches, right? There's something about the kind of personality or level of experience that we need in those people too. That's important. But I want to, I also want to draw out, you know, I think it's, it is a real dilemma for progressive politics that we've got Johnson or we had Trump who look like they're advocates for change. And they are talking in those terms while basically arguing for change on behalf of people, not with people. Right. And I think that to me, it's one of the things that is, that sits as a sort of like a canary in the cage on the idea of going big for me, which is like, who decides what's big? right? Like, is it, is it Donald Trump standing on a stage telling everyone what's big or is it communities of people like in that Citizens UK training, building conversations and demands together for the kind of future that they want? How do you see that playing out? You know, you've talked about, you talk in the book about some of the processes that have been involved in these housing campaigns, you know, on all these varieties of issues, like you just canvas basically every issue in the book. What do you think is, how important is it about who decides how you go big? I think it's a really hard question. I guess it's one I'm still, I, I sort of grapple with. I think a couple of things occurred to me. Arnie Graff, the community organiser I mentioned, used to say to me, look, think about the living wage. The living wage came out of community campaigns, community organising, I think in the 1970s in, in the 19, US. 1994. 1994. Yeah. So, so, so I think it's got to be with people and I think it's got to come out of people's experiences. And I talk in the book, you know, I think we want, we've got to deep, we've, we've got to improve our representative institutions, but we've also got to deepen our democracy. And that's why systems assemblies, other things. We've done that in the UK in relation to climate. Actually, people come out with quite radical ideas. I think in the end that that, that maybe politicians think, well, if we consult people, they'll be less radical and they'll hold us back. I think the opposite is true, actually. It's true in Ireland when they looked at uh, re- reforming the laws on abortion, same-sex marriage. You know, it's so interesting the way that people's that consulting people did pr- did produce change. So I think that is really, I think that is a really important part of it. I, d- I definitely, I definitely agree. I think there is a sort of distinction between the focus group is a sort of vice and a virtue. I would say, and I know you're not talking about focus groups here. Um, but, you know, the focus groups, that I'm sure people will know, but, you know, it's sort of where you kind of consult people, you know, sort of like a polling way, a, a sort of d- discursive way about in discussion about politics and so on, well, and indeed many other things, because I think there's a way in which they can hold you back because they can give you lots of different advice and, and, and in a sense, you know, part of political leadership is to take risks is to is to hear what people are saying but then to take risks but but I, look, I definitely if the if the question is should this be done with people do we need to find different ways in which we consult people we talk to people we we are informed by people's 
experiences and views definitely and also are people fundamental to making this change happen completely you know completely but but i think that i don't think that needs to hold us back from big change so you know for example we have the care crisis in this country around elderly care the citizens juries and assemblies that have been done on that so actually people are up for change they do you know they're actually willing to look at taxes you know how you pay for it all of those things i actually think I think politicians often can tend to be less bold than people. Yeah, I think that that's true. And look, one of the things that I found so exciting about the book, and you set it up at the beginning and then you run it through chapter in, chapter out, is that the the, the Bismarckian phrase, you know, that politics is the art of the possible is possibly too small <laughs> for politics of this age, right? You know, that we need to go big on a different understanding of politics. I wonder if how you might unpack your reflections. I mean, you talk about politics being going big can be about setting a big goal, a big direction, like a you know a, a light on the hill is a phrase that's used in Australia, where you know or North Star where we're going to go, or it can be sort of a set of domino demands where where you're slowly building, you know, a bit like a Green New Deal in a way where you're slowly building towards a new vision. How do you think about like the book seems to be calling for a new <laughs> a new big art of the possible uh, for politics. Well, what is that for you? Well, I, I really appreciate you. You've understood it, if I may say so. I'm not saying this flattery more than any other person who's interviewed me for the book. Um, <laughs> well, uh, you're very uh, nice. <laughs> uh, no, honestly, I mean, I think you've put it better almost than I did in the book. Yes. You see, I think, so So I say that Bismarck was wrong because actually it's not the art of the possible politics. It's the art of making the impossible possible. So the, it's the profound changes that that at one point look look like they can never happen. And you are, I think, you're bang on in in the following respect, which is that that doesn't mean to say that incrementalism can't work. It's it's there's two ways of doing this. There's and I think a little bit of it maps onto some of it can map onto social movements versus elected politics, but in some sense it doesn't. It's not a it's not a complete mapping. So you can argue for the big change, like you take universal basic income. I think it's an idea that deserves to be kept alive. I think it's a really exciting idea. It's a flat rate welfare payment, you know, not the means tested system. Give people a platform. Is it going to happen tomorrow? No, it isn't. Is it going to probably happen in five years' time? No, it isn't. But it, it deserves to be kept alive. So. And you know, the National Health Service established in 1948 in the UK was first talked about in a government report, a minority report in 1909. So I think it's keeping those big ideas, the impossible there. But then there's something about the sort of incrementalist approach, which I don't sort of say can't be done. And I think the question I'm asking about that is, does it point the way to a different way of doing things? Although, does it point the way towards the impossible? So, yeah. so what do I mean? What do I sort of mean by that? If you take, for example, I talk in the book about paid paternity leave, use it or lose it paternity leave, which is the, the thing they have in the Scandinavian countries, uh, Nordic countries. You know, I'd love to get to the Icelandic six months father's leave, use it or lose it. Am I going to get there tomorrow? Probably not. But even opening that conversation, even doing a bit towards that, a month, three months, would be a big profound change. It might not be yet the impossible. If, you know, if you take care, you know, putting care at the centre of your economy, and whether that's universal childcare or proper social care system, I think it opens up a whole set of conversations about 
how we live? Does is GDP the thing that matters? You know, so it points the way to a different way of of doing things. There's a writer called Andre Gortz who I think called these non. It's a terrible phrase, so forgive me. Non-reformist reforms. Yeah, so yeah. So it's reforms that point the way to a different to a different way of running your society. So I think that's kind of the way I think about it. Yeah, yeah. I love I love it the way in which you bring in heavy theory into everyday politics. <laughs> You're such your your dead son. Yeah, <laughs> I read well, on course when I was when I was also being an earnest um undergraduate. But now so my final question is a reflective question for, for you, Ed, which is you've had lots of experience both in politics, but thinking about politics, imagine sort of reflecting on it and acting in it. If you were to go back to to, to young Ed, you know, maybe it was in September 2010, just taking on the, the the reins of being opposition leader. What's the most important lesson that you know now that you'd whisper into your ear that you wished you'd known then? That's a really good question. I think follow your instincts, actually. I mean, it's an odd thing to say, but because, you know, we don't agree on everything, but you know, Tony Blair says, said, whenever I wish, whenever I'd done a reform, I wished I'd gone further. I wished I'd been bolder. And I think there is a sort of certain truth to that, actually. You know, it, it's not the things, it's not the things that you did that where you followed your instincts that you regret. It's the ones where you didn't. And I think that's probably true in politics and that's true in sort of life. Go out there and say what you think, and then you know, let the chips fall where they may. And I think that's the hard thing. And you know, it's an odd thing to say, but I think I think the process of electoral calculus you know, calculating the angles can be the thing that actually ends up standing in your way of winning. Yeah. Because I think because I think it's sort of the 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 public can sort of get get the way you're sort of thinking about it and 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 they kind of want to know what do you think and where do you stand? So I I think, and, and look, that isn't to say the, there aren't important pressures and thinking about public opinion and all of that. And I don't want to be unrealistic about this, but I, so I think it's, I think it's sort of follow your instincts. I think, I think follow your instincts, follow your heart, if that doesn't sound too romantic and, and leave it all out there on the field. And, you know, I was, do, I tried to do that as I saw it as a person I was then between 2010 and 2015, but you learn you know, about what does that actually look like? You know, where, where, what pressures did you succumb to? What pressures didn't you succumb to? Where should you have been bolder? So I think, I think that's, that's the profound lesson. Follow, follow your instincts. Yeah. Wow. And what I love is that you are constantly sharpening those instincts as you've gone on, as you're practicing the kind of perseverance that you saw others practicing your childhood, you know, that kind of, you just keep at it. And if you keep at it and you keep thinking about it, surely we get to the place we need to be, right? Trying to, trying to. Yeah. That's what you've got to keep doing, you you know. And in a way that's, look, you know, I say at the end of the book, I had this um, sort of father figure who unfortunately died at um, Christmas 2020, Leo Panish, Canadian academic. And, you know, he always used to say to me, look, do people left people on the left confuse their own lifetime with achieving their objectives, uh, their political objectives? And that's just the two are not the same. You, you know, this is all this is this is like a this is like a long process of struggle. And, you know, you, you, you operate in the here and now and you do your best, but it's not not the not, it's not completed in one lifetime. 
yeah, it's it, there's an eternalness to it, and that's why the learning and the and the growing and the and the evolving is so important. It's as important as the achievement is the how we build our capacity to change over time is as important as anything. Absolutely. It, it has been truly delightful talking with you about going big. Everyone should go out and read the book, get into it. It's very exciting. And I look forward to engaging with you further on many of these interesting topics like the Green New Deal, no doubt down the track. Thank you so much. Well, I've really enjoyed it, Amanda. Thank you so much. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. We have a few other episodes that build off the themes in this one. If you're curious about community organising, you can listen to a Changemaker chat we did with Arnie Graff, the guy Ed mentioned. It came out earlier this year. We also have a chat with Jonathan Cox from Citizens UK, the organisation that Ed mentioned as well. If you're interested in the politics around Brexit, go back to our second episode ever. You're going to have to scroll all the way back down called How to Win. And listen to a story about Brexit where we interviewed both sides of the campaign to get a better sense of what happened. Our Changemakers digital marketer is Lachlan Hodson. Our audio producer is Jules Wookera. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast, find us on Twitter at Changemakers99 and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to take a look at the Changemakers Organising School if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking. making.